Hello, Detroit in the world. Welcome to a very special episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Audio Wave Network Studios on the Lower East Side here in the city, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. Now a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens Davidson. I missed you, Donna. Hey, I Donna. You too. It's been a while since, you know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody, for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people. People on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Today, we are joined by two amazing journalists working and living here, working and living, working and living here in the city of Detroit. Olivia Lewis is a reporter and editor for British Detroit. Olivia is a former Gannett News reporter. She covers social justice and opportunity for the Battle Creek Inquirer before transitioning to the Indianapolis Star to cover Hamilton County. Her byline has appeared in the Houston Chronicle and the Daily Press and Newport News, Virginia, among other publications. Lewis is a graduate of Hampton University and received her Master's of Public Policy degree from the University of Michigan. Olivia, for the first time ever, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Hi, thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you. Applause for Olivia. <laughs> also joining us again is Louis Aguilar. Louis is the senior reporter for British Detroit. Aguilar previously worked for the Detroit News as a business and investigative journalist. He is a former staff writer at the Washington Post, Denver Post, Westward, Denver's Alternative Weekly, and Colorado Springs Gazette. He wrote a national column on U.S. Latino issues for the former Night Ridge news service on today's show we will be discussing two amazing long form stories that lewis and livia wrote last week regarding the census results lewis wrote a headline that said as detroit's population keeps falling how do we get here and olivia wrote why we live in detroit and why we won't leave listen if you have not read those two stories, head on over to BridgeDetroit.com to take a peek. We're going to get into the details a little later on in the show. But first, how is everybody? Olivia, well, I'm going to pick on you. How you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Um, you know, I'm a little bit nervous because uh, this is my first podcast, but um, I'm really happy to be with the team. So that makes me feel a little bit better. Good. <laughs> <laughs> she says she's nervous. I got to tell a quick story about Olivia, right? So uh, Donna finds a way to mention almost every episode since it happened that I am now an Emmy Award winner. But Olivia and I are inextricably tied to that Emmy win because uh, on American Black Journal, we had a conversation around is the media getting the Black Lives Matter coverage right um, as it relates to all of the coverage that happened last summer um, in the wake of the George Floyd uh, protests and around the world and i interviewed olivia lewis and kat stafford and so that's the episode that won the emmy so i would not have an emmy <laughs> if it wasn't for you olivia lewis thank you I can we get a round of applause yeah. <laughs> 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 
That's a tough act to follow. But but Emmy, <laughs> but but Olivia wants to know: Will you share the spotlight with? I don't just mention it every time we're on the show. <laughs> I mention Orlando's Emmy every time we're around anybody. It is so funny. I introduced him to somebody today, and I said, "This is the Emmy Award-winning mm-hmm. former employee and youth <laughs> program member from um, Eastside Community Network, Orlando Bailey." So, Orlando, I'm sorry. That's- She's getting me back because y'all know. I don't know if you guys know this, but Donna is uh, uh, staff. She's a professor at the Columbia University. Oh. And when that happened, I find I found a way to mention that every time uh, we were in the same space together. Yeah. Oh. So, Professor Givens, what's that syllabus looking like? <laughs> Givens-Davidson. You what's know, on your we, syllabus Oh, this my goodness. Fall? It is it is actually kind of um, nerve-wracking right now because, you know, um, well, for one thing, I have to get ready to get back into teaching mode. But yeah. I'm super excited. One of the um, authors that I was working with last year is a man named jo- Josiah Rector, mm-hmm. who got his Ph.D. from Wayne State University and is now at the University of Houston. And through Facebook, we became con- uh, acquainted. And um, his dissertation that I used as one of the texts last year is now a book, Toxic Debt. Mm. And it's going to be published in April of 2022, but he's allowing us. You got the preview copy. have the preview copy, and I'm able to teach out of this book. It is about, you know, the environmental justice history of Detroit, Toxic Debt and Environmental Justice History of Detroit. It's something I, we really, really need to have him we on gotta have here. We got to have him on here. I sure learned yeah. so much from there, and I don't know where he got all this information. The amount of research he did in our city is really, really phenomenal. So we will be teaching from that. Um, and another author from the University of Michigan um, is, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to feature local authors, local researchers yeah. who really understand our city. And I'm going to segue from that. Who from say, U of M? June Manning Thomas? No, it's not June Manning Thomas. It is the 50 Year Rebellion by okay. Scott Kirishige, Okay, who used to be a professor at the University of Michigan. He says the only professor who actually lived in the city of Detroit while he taught at U of M. Love it. And so he is also in um, in Texas. Um, but his we used his book last year. What these authors do is what our guests today do. And that is they ask the questions I want answered. They tell the (laughs) stories I want to hear. And that's why I'm so excited. The reason um, when we used to do Fresh Off the Press and we have decided to change that format a little bit. But the reason I always reference um, the two of you is because you are always telling the stories I wanted to hear and the stories that you don't read in mainstream press. Um, so I really want to thank you for joining thank us. Y'all. I'm really, really yeah, excited. When Orlando yeah, said you. that you were going to be here, and I was like, yes, Louis Aguilar and Olivia <laughs> Lewis, I'm always reading their stories. This is really, really great. Um, and I think Detroiters need to know more about your work and how you got here and what your conclusions are beyond the edited short stories that you're telling, what's going on in your mind, and what are your thoughts around that. So I'm excited. Yeah, Thank Lewis, you. welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. In the person, in it's the flesh. In the studio. How you doing, man? Good, good. I'm enjoying the green, <laughs> the, uh, the, the ivory, the fake ivy. Oh, man, it's, it's good, it's good. And, and you know, what's funny is that um, as a newsroom over at Bridge Detroit, we rarely get to see each other in person That's true. anyway. So every time I get to share space with these two amazing storytellers, it's always, it's always a privilege. So thank you so much for saying yes. All right, y'all, we're premiering a new segment called Hot Takes. <laughs> yes. 
where Donna and I will I run down some of the week's top headlines in the guess. city of Detroit. Yes, <laughs> hot takes, y'all. The hot take today is towing and the FBI. Right. What a thought. Towing and the FBI. If you've been paying attention to the news at all within the last week and a half, then you it, then you know that the FBI is in Detroit, and it looks like the FBI ain't going no. Where raided the homes of two sitting city council people in the person of Scott Benson and Janae Ayers and Scott Benson's chief of staff, as well as their offices at uh, city council, the city at the city county building. Right. Uh, what is the big offense? What is the question about? What is the investigation about? If you've ever had your car towed. And not saying I have, but I definitely have. <laughs> I if, have. If I did, it costs a lot of money to get my car out. Yes. Okay, it's like all right, rent or my car. I'm not sure which one. It's you know, they I mean they they charge a lot, and these lots are full of cars. And so, but my initial thought was towing. Towing seems like <laughs> such a minor insignificant activity in the city of Detroit. We have talked about every issue. We talked about demolition. We talked about construction. We talked about street cleaning. We Apparently talked there's about money and towing. We have never, ever even discussed towing. So it's so hard to make towing is central. And yet you have to peel back the layers. Who owns the tow companies? And I've been reading things. I don't know how true they are. And one of the things that Orlando and I agreed to is we're going to try to understand more about what this towing operation really looks like in our city. How much money do these companies make? How many cars are we towing? Why is Gasper Fiore in prison for bribing yet another municipality in Macomb County to get a towing contract? Why are you bribing people to tow cars? I don't get it. You know? Um, and, and what is the process by which these tow companies get things? The, what I've been reading, and I'm not swearing by this news, I read it in Motor City, Muckraker, by Steve Neveling, that the two tow companies in question are controlled by or have been controlled, but the, the conglomerates were controlled by um, Gaspar Fiore and Anthony Suave. And Anthony Suave is no stranger That's to Detroit. That's a name we know. Corruption conversations. Suave Enterprises. Suave Enterprises. He bought land behind us when Fiat Chrysler was looking to expand. And magically, he bought some land that looks pretty useless until he was able to sell it to the city and make a whole bunch of money in a quick sell. Um, he flipped the property to Fiat Chrysler. And, you know, I don't know if that was insider knowledge, but some people seem to suspect <laughs> it was. But when you look at the conglomerates, these conglomerates are part of something much bigger than towing companies, too. And so we want to look at the scope of who's doing business and making money in Detroit contracting where we don't think about it. Because and what is the contracting and procurement up. process? What does that look like? And to what extent, when I think of towing in the city of Detroit, I think of um, probably an out, I think of an outright attack on marginalized folks who probably can't afford car insurance and still got to get around and they get pulled over and they, of course, they can't drive without car insurance. Like, you ever think of, or parking, right? Like, how? Sure. Does the city, does the police department oversee these contracts? Who's overseeing them? Who's monitoring fidelity uh, and compliance? All of the things. Keeping in mind that three years ago, the city decided to get into the towing contract business itself. 
And yeah. um, the police department bought tow trucks and started investing in this initiative and got found out. And apparently that was not uh, allowable because the police commission did not allow it. Um, at that time, Deputy Mayor Conrad Mallet, before he became dep- Deputy Mayor, was on the police commission. And after that hoopla, resigned and went to work, stayed with the Detroit Medical Center mm-hmm. before he went to work for the city as Deputy Mayor. Connect the dots. And I don't know if the dots all connect or if we're just looking at some crazy line squiggly going other places and there's no real connection between these events. But I think it's also helpful to remember that Gasper Fiore did not just have towing operations in our community, that the city did not just debar every single towing company that was connected to him, but he also owned um, garbage hauling businesses. And so Rizzo, um, you know, garbage company Mm -hmm. or trash disposal, whatever, Rizzo was part of his empire. And when he went to prison, Rizzo changed his name to what is advanced disposal. Advanced disposal. That's a much more impressive name. It's um, advanced. Advanced disposal. <laughs> so we have adva- our, our our garbage pickup is now very advanced. It's very advanced. Um, but you know the trucks were repainted <laughs> so that they would not look like the Rizzo trucks. So when you think about this, though, think about what that means in our community. That one company had towing contracts and garbage removal contracts and remember the garbage removal was privatized from when public employees used to do it used some to years do it, back yeah, the city, yeah, so the how much money does the city contract out how are these contracts secured and how many industries are these two conglomerates controlling and how much are detroiters paying for this so in addition to in addition to the contracts right so that's tax dollars detroiters dollars going to these companies for these contracts but if you're a detroiter and you ever got your car towed in the city of detroit how much y'all pay? i'm just asking questions how much like you paying to get your car 300 dollars, right cash. it's a daily rate in cash <laughs> right and the rate is compounded day yeah. by day the longer it stays in there the more expensive it gets who getting rich right and when the floods happened and cars were stuck on freeways people were being charged seven hundred dollars to retrieve their cars nine hundred dollars to retrieve their cars that's price gouging and when you do it in the event of a you know weather disaster it just seems wrong if I were to be the mayor of a city or a person controlling these contracts, it seems like I might want to negotiate something that says that we're not going to do the maximum harm to people when they're in the most vulnerable position. But they did it in 2014, and again they did it in 2021. And so there's a lot of questions. We don't know the answers. We are not investigative reporters. Um, we're happy to be sitting with a couple. Yeah, so that, Lewis is um, an investigator. We're gonna we're gonna drop this you know concept that maybe. These these things need to be looked at and speak to people who have been a little closer to this issue because it is important that when you read that public officials, 44% of the sitting city council in 2020 has been indicted, convicted, or investigated for corruption, 44%. And, you know, one thing I learned... We're talking about towing. We don't know, but but, but see... (laughs) I have to... to we should caution once again that uh, we don't know what Ayers or Benson or even Spivey at this point, we don't know what is the the industry, the cause, mm-hmm. why they're being investigated. Uh, Ayers and Benson haven't even been charged with anything. Right. Uh, so theoretically, it could mean 
that they're key witnesses and that they, their offices and homes were raided because they had key information to uh, maybe what Spivey was up to. Uh, so, I mean, just to caution, I mean, I think we're all headed down this way because Mayor Duggan said a few days after the raids that it looks like it's probably towing. And that's the most public statement anyone has made about what these raids have been about, are, yeah. investigations about. But, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, people are going off of <laughs> past experiences. And so, I mean, it, it is, at this point, just to be clear, it is a leap that no one has verified, really. Yeah. I mean, there's some sources that told uh, the Detroit News that it was about towing. Uh, but they didn't say that if Ayers was going to be charged or Benson could be charged. And so, those documents you know are sealed. I'm not, yeah. And I'm not doubting that, you know. And so, my sister was a federal prosecutor. Sure, yeah. Um, and um, before she became a federal magistrate judge. And so, you know, I've, I've got all the rules and caveats and all of that. I will say this, that if you have evidence and people think you have evidence, the first thing they do is ask you for it. If they're investigating something, um, they don't go to your home and snatch it out your home. I think that when there's a search warrant, usually a search warrant is based on more than just we think you may have unwitting evidence to something. That's my opinion, and it's me putting it out there. Um, so if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I just think that the way these things were conducted, um, somebody went before a judge and they had to give probable cause of something I believe being in a place where it shouldn't have been. And um, because, you know, having also served as a witness in a case mm -hmm. that I don't want to discuss right now, I know the first thing was, do you have this information? And yes, I have this information and it never had to go any further. So I'll say that and not go into a whole lot of detail. And I, But I do appreciate the fact that you are um, an investigative reporter at Bridge Detroit, an independent news organization that does not um, act on the mayor's agenda because that was a thought I had also when I was reading the Detroit News. Like, wait a minute. How do you know the special investigator, the FBI has been pretty clear they're not telling Detailing you what this anything, is about. Yeah. And I doubt there's any leaks in the FBI which means that somebody else is putting that out there. In my first glance, my first thought was, oh, you're saying it's towing because you're trying to throw the scent off of demolition or construction or one of these more <laughs> meaty issues. But as I started reading other people's takes on towing and understanding the level of towing scandal in the city of Detroit, even if the FBI is not investigating towing, there's something foul about what's happening with towing operations, and we need to know about it. And again, um, you know, a lot of these companies are involved in more than one industry. Um, so we can look and see if Suave has a towing conglomerate that some people seem to suggest the city is supporting through public policy. And I'm not saying that's true or not. I think we need to investigate it. What other businesses is Suave Enterprises in other than flipping land behind our building? What other businesses is Suave Enterprises possibly in? Because, you know, that's not how it works. It, you know, these, these aren't discrete, separate industries from what I'm seeing. And I think we, we would do well to understand where all of the dots connect. Sure. So one of the key things ahead. that you mentioned, which I think is part of the answer 
you said that you and Orlando never even have discussed towing. And that's that's the key. Neither has the media. And the thing, one of the things is, as you probably know, the see, I mean, the more secret it is, the more no one pays attention. The easier it is to develop this culture of graft. Of you yep. know, I mean, who has paid attention to towing contracts? I mean, I'm sure they're just contracts that are just part of the dozen you see almost every week on a city council agenda. They're passed without any. Uh, comment you know there's not even much public comment and that's one of the keys of to develop graft nobody's paying attention to the money i mean it just goes it just happens uh it's an unsexy subject yeah uh, but it's one that affects so many people i mean i I wish we can do a poll and i think we will do a poll like on social media or something to figure out how many of our listeners or how many people just in the city who follow us on our various social media platforms have had an encounter with towing and it's it's bad too i mean it is a very unpleasant experience it i can is. tell you when, when i got told it was from my own apartment complex and i went out the next morning and at first i thought my car had been stolen because i've had a car that was stolen before and so i was like oh my god now another one but it turns out my car had been towed figuring out like okay let me call the towing place to see if the car is there and it was where was and the towing place somewhere on the east side i don't even remember at this point like, and these the unmarked actual, lots and stuff that yeah. the yeah I don't remember. I don't remember the name of the exact company. But when I showed up to say like, "Hey, I I really need my car today. Like, I am late for work." They charged three hundred dollars, and I said, "Well, I don't have it." And the lady was like, "Okay, well, how about you give me one fifty instead?" And she wow. took the one fifty. Oh my god! But it was like, so you didn't really need to charge me three hundred dollars. Oh my god! I need your I need your negotiation skills. They were like, <laughs> you know what? We need this exact amount in a cashier's check and. You know, they didn't give me that latitude. No, so it was, it was all cash. I thought you'd have been like, told, hey, Donna, hey, give me Davidson. Oh, yeah. Disclaimer removed. They said they need, what did they say to you? I had to give a cashier's check. I couldn't wow. even give, yeah. I could give cash or a cashier's check, but you can't write a check. No credit card. And I just felt like um, maybe I was with a different. Con- I felt dehumanized. I felt like the whole process was dehumanizing. Was that your experience? Yeah, but I have to tell you, when I I grew up in Southwest Detroit, and well, it wasn't exactly a Boy Scout, so but (laughs) I knew a guy who whose full time hobby was sort of to steal car radios and things like that. But he also had some sort of scam involving tow trucks, where he would alert police at a gas station that had a towing truck to mm-hmm. get there first and I, I never really didn't know what the scam was but it, i know it made him a lot of money uh so <laughs> that always was the impression in my mind this whole thing is a scam and then yeah when a friend of mine about five years ago she got towed because she parked her car overnight in front of a empty house a bacon house but she had parked in front of the driveway which was all weedy but they towed her car and i had to go pick her up at Boulevard and Trumbull, which is like right there in Corktown. Yeah. yeah. And I just remember going into this place and the lobby was, you know, had bulletproof glass. Mm-hmm. There was someone in there. You didn't even you. How many times did you ride by the place before you realized it was yeah. the place? Yeah. And, and you know, there's someone in there who was just 
completely stressed out. It's like, I'm not giving you another $100. And, like, I mean, they were just extracting a huge amount of money from this person. And, yeah, she had to pay hundreds of dollars for uh, to get her car back. I mean, just for the flimsiest excuse yeah. to park in front of, she parked in front of a, a vacant driveway that was, like, all weedy and stuff, and uh. they towed it. And yeah. we have so much space here in the city. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I just don't understand it. And the other thing too, like the the potential for that that kind of industry, like based on what you're saying about what your your former friend who had this thing going with the cops, right? Uh you know, cops often tow a whole bunch of cars. How do we not know that there aren't like, and I'm not speculating, but there's the potential for corruption there. If, if a cop calls a certain uh, tow truck company, if they're in good and they get a kick, you don't, you, I mean, how, what are the guardrails to I've, protect I've heard against that? That there are, I've heard in particular one church was involved in some type of scandal. I'm not going to talk about the church, but I've heard so many different things. And I, you, what you speak about is so important, transparency, right? I was doing research on um, from the previous week's story on, you know, what happens to um, public corruption. And lack of transparency is one of the biggest aspects of public corruption. And it seems as though the tow industry is not very transparent. We don't understand it. We know it's happened to us. People get embarrassed or upset or they may tell two friends, but we don't really begin to aggregate that information and figure out what it is. But you're 150. I'm sure there are many other cars in that lot. If they all paid 150, think about I'd what that means on that, that day. Mm-hmm. Well, because 150 was, I, I, we don't have your negotiating skills. So, um, <laughs> She's like, I don't know. More and more, just like, please, please. Olivia, you have an absolutely beautiful smile. I'm sure that's what it is. <laughs> Okay, it's your smile. Some people just have that it. This people are like, oh, you know, just give me half, just give me twenty dollars. We're cool. But I didn't have that. I just ended up having to pay the whole thing. And I think many people do. Um, trans lack of transparency is a thing, and that's one of the reasons why when you talk about that, we really wanted to make that front and center in the next few weeks, months, however long it takes for us to really understand, because we think Detroiters really need to understand what's happening in dark places, in the shadows, where nobody's looking, and where it affects the quality of life of average, everyday people, like all four of us. JG, have you ever had your car towed? <laughs> I'm trying I'm to call sure. I'm trying. You have not. JG have says not. no, he's All not. All right, well, he has not. So, you know, that is like one out of five. Right. <laughs> I have a question for the two of you before we get into the feature segment to talk about your stories. And it is about investigative journalism in the city of Detroit. Does it exist? Uh, yeah, it does. Um, I would say there's four people who do it well. Mm. I mean, there's uh, in uh, you, you're having to deal with uh, shrinking newsrooms, and mm-hmm. uh, so there's just less people who know how to do it well, and you have the competition of the twenty four seven news cycle and get things up fast. So there's almost the instant gratification of getting a you know a a story that gets you a lot of reads of a new restaurant opening. So the resources and the dedication isn't always there. Yeah, I feel like it's, it's we're in a much different climate in the city of Detroit. I remember growing up 
<laughs> um, even during the Kwame years um, and even before that um, and after that investigative journalism was really you yeah. know front and center yeah. um, in the narrative about the city of Detroit and uh, in print and in um, broadcast news sure, and yeah. I'm wondering like what what has happened because that's also um, uh, an ode to increasing transparency and exposing sure, yep. and bringing to light things that take place in dark, dark places. Right. Yep. That's why we have bridge Detroit as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. So glad you have it. I just want to just, um, hat off the press, not really real hot. It's been out a couple hours, but Scott Benson did hire Steve Fishman, a top, that. um, criminal defense attorney. That's so another uh, thing. So, uh, yeah, he hired, uh, uh, a well-known attorney who's uh, defended other council persons in the past, but it's part of the sad routine where it sounds like he's going to let his lawyer speak for him, just like Gabe Leland did, just like Andrew Spivey Absolutely. has. They don't feel the well, they're smart. Compulsion. That's smart, that, I though, mean, Lewis. That's what you can't, do. It, I, yeah. I, as a, from a legal standpoint, it's yeah. From a public official, I mean, can you just not say you're? Not guilty? Is He's that running so hard unopposed, to okay? Well, when the, you're running the lawyer said it. He is but the lawyer said it. That's really convincing when the lawyer well, says when you're, you're, when, you're, when you're running unopposed, then you're not at risk of losing anything. I saw the Detroit Free Press sort of said, hey, before we endorse you again, this is my interpretation. Eh, can you just speak up and say you didn't do it? <laughs> you know, um, and because if not, we may not be able to endorse you again. Is how I interpreted the editorial. It was really interesting. What's hilarious to me is I got a call from uh, <laughs> Council President Bridget Jones's office, and uh, she wants to present to me a Spirit of Detroit Award on Ooh. September the seventh, right? <laughs> oh, that's a good time to be there. Okay, so <laughs> all of these names, though, that are going to appear <laughs> on my Spirit of Detroit Award. Scott oh, wow. Benson, Janae Ayers, Andre Spivey, like all of these folks that are either under investigation, folks that have been indicted, like Spivey. I'm just like. But I mean, again, what, like Lewis said, like. It doesn't necessarily mean they did anything wrong. Maybe I know, but it's just it's just a weird time, right? So yeah. it's it's gonna be it's, it's gonna be day to be there, right? It's remember the, day, the, the first day back. Well, on September seventh. So um, make sure y'all watching you, that. Y'all. Oh, no doubt. I mean, I'm just gonna add to your list of honors: Emmy Award winning Spirit of Detroit representing. Orlando Bailey. Congratulations. Right. I'm happy for you. Thank you. Hey. Yeah, you know, I've worked in this town for years. Ain't nobody ever gave me nothing. Ain't nobody gave me nothing. Uh, yeah, in this the wars are about to pile on. Right? <laughs> Watch out, world. That yes. wraps up hot takes, y'all. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, <laughs> you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. All right, so we want to go back to. Uh, uh, these census wraparound stories that uh, Lewis and Olivia wrote at BridgeDetroit.com. Um, Lewis, I, I really want to punt to you because your story, as Detroit's population keeps falling, how did we get here? It sort of chronicles and tees up the story that Olivia wrote and released around uh 
the traders who say they live here and who say they're not leaving, uh, but also raise, you know, a few uh, tension points that we want to get to. But Lewis, you did, I, I got, I said this to you already, but you did an outstanding job just sort of teasing out, you know, uh, really palpable and important moments from the last decade that sort of uh, lays the ground for what we are seeing in um, 2021. Can you talk a little bit about, number one, your process, and then uh, Donna and I will ask you to sort of uplift some of these points that you've made. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thank you. Well, you know, the the results came out and it showed once again that Detroit lost population uh, through the decade and that it, what is the seventh decade in a row that we've lost population. But instantly, Mayor Duggan uh, sort of came back and said that he's going to contest th- that uh, count. And he said that the Trump antics really meant that uh, that the city's been woefully undercounted because, you know, the, the census count was cut by a month short. Uh, you know, there was the pandemic. And th- oh, those are all valid uh, reasons. But there was much more than that. I mean, he really, early on in his uh career he really did stake his reputation he dared the public to judge him on uh whether there was going to be population growth or not Mm -hmm. and it just struck me that i mean we just went through as always uh, just a remarkable decade in detroit where we had a bankruptcy we saw we had gentrification and degradation almost happening Mm. at the same speed Mm -hmm. i mean there have been epic deals and epic uh loss in the same decade and i just thought and either and often you just see one of those narratives being played out in the media either you talk just about you know i don't know foreclosures or you talk just about the rise of downtown and i just thought it would be nice to show uh the two sort of paths that the city has been on uh, and who it affects so you know 2010 is when uh you know Dan Gilbert moves to town. Uh, it's the first wave of tax foreclosures. Uh, and really, it just starts to sort of those separate paths where by the middle of the decade, you have 20,000 tax foreclosures in 2015. And you have 8,000 white residents moving to Detroit, which is the first time there's been a major increase on the white population since 1950. So, and I remember, I actually did that story for the news when we figured out that, well, there's been a huge increase in the white population. And that story, I remember within 24 hours, uh, the Washington Post had picked it up, the AP had picked it up, and the next day I was actually on Los Angeles Public Radio. (laughs) I don't know why, but they're like, hey, can you talk about it? And I was on a live talk show where people were calling in about, uh, it was just huge news that, uh, uh, and the the LA Public Radio Station kind of used it as a context of how young white millennials were changing, you know, the urban dynamic and things like that, but it also was a sign of gentrification. But I just was so struck by the huge response. But at this, I don't remember any of that for the tax foreclosure. That was the peak year of tax right. foreclosures. I don't remember the well, the huge stories about tax right. foreclosures. The story was white folks are coming into the city. The radar. So yeah. I just wrote a timeline of here is the things that happened almost year by year. The peaks and the and the the troubling undercurrents and that's why we're at and that's why we have this constant two detroit's 
uh, debate. Well, I have a couple questions. The mayor seemed kind of shocked by the census results, but I've been looking at census estimates for the past few years, and there's absolutely no estimate I ever saw that did not show Detroit losing population. Was he looking at other numbers? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you have to ask him. What well, the thing is, though, I, he hasn't said that. He hasn't dared the public to judge him on population growth for a few years now. That's a, so he's figured that out. <laughs> I'm just saying that, you know, the reality is that it's kind of disingenuous to me. The second thing is, um, it seems to me as though the two Detroits are not just happenstance. They're not happening, you know, in parallel without any type of connection it feels as though one detroit is happening at the expense direct expense of another detroit Mm. like there are policy decisions that are being made to facilitate one detroit at the expense of others when your entire housing strategy is building up wealthy detroit while stable while stabilizing subsidized housing when you understand that most affordable housing in Detroit is deregulated. It is naturally occurring. It is not part of any system. And you have no plan at all to stabilize that market, even while tax foreclosures are happening unabated for about seven years before somebody wakes up and says, wait a minute, maybe we should think about doing something from a a philanthropic standpoint. And then slowly you begin, you know, to get these laws changed, but you had so many years where nobody was trying to do anything. And um, to some extent, that freed up land, it freed up the population, it pushed people out. And I'm not saying it was intentional always, but I do think that you cannot disconnect public policy. You can't say that spending money to incentivize people moving downtown did not come at the expense of people moving into neighborhoods. You cannot say that creating 10 strategic neighborhoods did not come at the expense of all of the other neighborhoods when you decided that you were going to all of your philanthropy and all of your resources are really tied to investing in not just the growth of those neighborhoods but the gentrification of those neighborhoods and how do i why do i say gentrification because your measurement of success if your measurement of success is housing values and property values increased and that's how we know we're successful that's gentrification okay if you're not also saying Let's look at well-being of people living inside these neighbors, mm. neighborhoods. Let's look at condition of housing and stability or whatever, or levels of poverty of people who've been here for more than five years. Really what you're facilitating is gentrification. And so you look at these neighborhoods and you say, look at the growth. And the or just letting homes deteriorate, Lewis. Like you yeah. wrote a story about demolition and the lack of public yeah. resources—not demolition, but uh, uh, home, home repair—and yeah. a lack of public resources yeah. for residents to fix their That's homes. The- they, people can't live, and people will not stay in homes that are literally deteriorating. Let and me quote you to and submit. And where there's a water shutoffs yeah. also mm-hmm. happening at the same time. That is a direct policy decision, where. I, from what I can tell, the city just, well, Duggan, really, I mean, Duggan really thought, well, if we shut it off, they're pay up, basically. Mm. I mean, that really was, it wasn't an understanding of, wow, we need to help them. We need to figure them, figure out, we just can't, sh-. but really the, this, the policy was, well, they're going to pay if we shut it off. This but is what you said. Within, you said, 
You said black Detroiters say wealthy white residents are the main beneficiaries of the city's ongoing revitalization. According to a survey by the University of Michigan, Detroit Metro Area Community Study, DMAX, overall, a third of Detroit residents view the quality of life in their neighborhood as staying the same, while the rest are evenly divided between perceiving their neighborhoods as improving or declining. That's the 2016 fact. Just to sort of submit what you and Donna are saying about growth in areas at the expense of the the lowest of the low in our city. But you know, I want to I want to push back a little bit on whether or not the mayor believed if we should cut people's water off they are going to pay up. I believe that it was less than that than if people don't pay, they don't deserve water. I think that there was this belief or this moralism around you have to pay your fair share and Whatever. And so, um, and I say that because, you know, if GM had a water bill that they weren't paying and we didn't have the same policy response to them or other corporate sectors, um, and when there was evidence that people didn't pay, there was also a real hesitance to create water affordability plans and other plans that would make it possible for people Mm -hmm. to pay up. I mean, the mayor is a very intelligent person and he can do math and he understands that if you're making $12,000 a year, your water bill is not affordable. And some of the things that you have to do to access water are not available. I think when I, when I, my understanding of water shutoffs was that, um, it was large part, the, um, the, credit rating agencies like Standard & Poor's were looking at the whether or not the city was able to collect on overdue balances. And the city's inability to collect on overdue balances affect the credit rating. And because the city is using borrowing so heavily and credit scores are so important to, you know, the city's fiscal plans, they had to do it in order to meet those requirements. 100,000 homes uh, in 2019 were shut off of water service mm. for non-payment. And, and the, the human suffering, you never hear human suffering. You never hear exactly, that coming yeah. from the city. It's like, you don't have water. Well, you should pay your bill. Well, we've got all these resources. And if you're not using them, that's your problem. Move on. Exactly. So, Lewis, I, just to recenter the conversation, all of this is an explainer for the reader to draw his or her own conclusions as to why we are seeing a steady population decline in the city of Detroit. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And also, I mean, really to show the effect, the impact on the black middle class. I mean, mm. the, I mean, the sadly, the diminishing number of black middle class families and couples in the city i mean we've uh detroit future city has been documenting that pretty well for five years or more i mean uh i mean it's not a recent trend and so i mean yeah i even if somehow detroit challenges successfully challenges census count and it shows at least there's been far less uh, population loss than what we have now, you still can't deny that there's a problem with keeping the black middle class in the city. Mm. Now, that's a mm. huge problem. That deals with housing, that deals with schools. Um, I, you know, I, I still wrestle with, I mean, you can, I'd want to show these facts to show, obviously, the patterns, the, the truths about things, the long-term patterns. 
you know, Kath, my boss, Catherine Kelly, and I still, we always are just debate about whether, uh, if it's, how much of it is intent and how much of it is uh, Market. unknowingly not knowing the, the, the result. But, I sometimes think that uh, the tools are, there's more tools when you, for incentivizing and giving you know, the billionaires tax incentives to build buildings. It's much harder to figure out things like, geez, nobody's getting a mortgage. How can the city of Detroit figure that one out? That's beyond our belief. It seems like it's almost the centrist Democrats versus progressives, where if they you have this toolbox, and I know how to incentivize people and give tax breaks, and so that's a, a formula. How to, you know, revive neighborhoods that uh you know uh with school simultaneously that seems out of their wheelhouse of how to figure it out well, I mean, maybe so, also but, be- but but i i will say that i don't know that mayor doug and whenever he intends to do something is not successful and we can talk about you know we, we put together complicated deals he know to how to make it happen things. he can when make you it happen. look at um many of the deals that are happening they're very complex when you look at transformational yep. brownfields tax credits sure, yeah. that was adding you know gasoline to the fire when the mayor wanted to change car insurance policies what did he do he went to Lansing. He went to Lansing. Yeah. He created an insurance in the D, and when that didn't work, he created you know this this uh, pool of people that he sent to Lansing to carry out his wishes while doing a lot of lobbying. And so I think that the intent may not be neglect, but the neglect is because you don't have a, an intent to take care of a system. And that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we have a downtown Detro- development authority. We have a decision that we're going to um, target certain neighborhoods. We have a decision even that our whole housing focus is multifamily housing, not family housing. So multifamily housing, which is usually studios, one and maybe two bedroom units that we've built up all over the city. So you can't have no kids. That's your priority. And if that's your priority, then you put all of the public purse behind that priority. Um, there are things that people have said, look, Mayor Duggan has moved mountains and we can't give him credit for all of the changes he's helped usher in to Detroit and then not give him accountability for all of the things that didn't happen. Yes, is it hard? Does that mean we've got to change systems? Would it be hard for him to go to Lansing and say, listen, we've got to do something about these tax foreclosures because people are losing their homes? Would it be hard for the mayor to say, you know, we've got to do something about our water affordability issue because people don't have water and people are really, really struggling? Would doing that come at the expense of something else? Yeah, probably. But it is a matter of of priority. I'm not assuming that he's sitting anywhere saying let me hurt poor people sure like yeah. i don't like, believe he yeah. wants to hurt poor people yeah but that's not the point for me you sure. know olivia your lead is compelling it, <laughs> it says black people are leaving the blackest city in america according to the latest census data i mean you came out the gate home girl swinging <laughs> You understand what I'm saying? And so in your story, your story carries this tension of uh, of growth in certain parts of the city. Right. Um, especially growth in right and in, in, in white residency and 
uh, this this feeling on part of black residents who are staying around the criminalization of the current culture that black people carry in this city. Talk about your approach to the story. How how did you find these people? How did you source it? And you know, yeah, um, yeah. So this story, um, I've actually gotten a lot of hate mail for for this story. I'm sure. Um, no, but I. We were talking about the census data, like our whole team, just talking about what are we going to do with this information. Um, and I think we do that for every story at Bridge Detroit. We talk about, you know, what is important to Detroiters? What are people thinking? What's not being uplifted? Um, what are the questions that Detroiters have around what's going on? Uh, and so when I saw all the other stories come out about the census, it was all like, oh, well, we lost population again, or yeah, like Duggan said, he's going to fight for an appeal. It's like, okay. Um, and so I, I actually called um, Anika Goss first and I asked her, I was like, you know, what, what are you seeing in this data? What are, what do you see? And what do you think all of this means? And, you know, she was actually the one who was kind of like, you know what, Olivia, I think it's a bad approach to think that Detroit is trending more white. Um, but we, what we really need to think about is like where are the investments going. And so like when you think about where investments are going, I also think about where are they not going and who is not seeing investment, mm. who is not being prioritized, whose voice is not being included. Um, and then what does that mean overall for the city? And over and over again, it was like, well, the people who feel like they're not being invested in people who feel like they don't have a voice or feel like they're not being heard or included in the conversation are black Detroiters. And that just makes no sense to me. When it's the blackest city in America, like none of it makes any sense. And so it was like, okay, let's talk to black Detroiters who grew up here, have been here. And then a couple of Detroiters too, who grew up here, maybe they left for a little bit and why did they decide to come back? So it's not just, it wasn't, I didn't want to turn it, turn the story around to be like, well, why are all of you people leaving? You know, like that, that just, that just seems problematic. Like it's not going to help solve anything. It's not going to answer any questions. It's more of like. Why, why are you here and why do you care about Detroit? Like, why, why is this a place that you want to be? Because I feel like that's the question that never gets asked. What were you hearing when you asked those questions? Um, you know what? What I really love about Detroit and Detroiters is that they have so much pride in the city. And I say they because I didn't grow up in Detroit. Mm -hmm. um, I have a lot of family ties here, but I didn't grow up here. And so... I'm also one of these like outsiders that I'm talking about in the story where it's just like when you see people come into a city, like there's this level of respect that we're supposed to have for people who have been here and have been done to. Mm. And I, the more I talk to people, it's like the more that they brought that up and that they felt like there was just this over and over again, like just this disrespect that was happening and to see that and to hear people talk about that and to be so passionate about the city still and then like say like I still want to be here I want to participate I want to raise my family here like that's really important and so I think that we need to really listen and uplift and encourage people who are talking about those things <laughs> Head over, y'all, to BridgeDetroit.com to read uh, both of these amazing stories um, in long form. One of the people that you talk to, Olivia, um, is a documentary, a documentary filmmaker, Michael Gray. And he talked about how hard it is 
to live in Detroit and to stay in Detroit, citing even, you know, not just not just the financial strain, right? We talk about car insurance, we talk about high property taxes and things like that, but also the cultural extraction that he f- is experiencing in certain spaces. How did, <laughs> uh, and we're talking about, we're talking about senses, right? Uh, and you found a way to put that in there. Why was that important to make sure that that was amplified and uplifted? Yeah, um, I think because culture is just such an important part of a city, of a people. It like it sets the tone for the place and the space. And so when we ignore all of that, like that, I think that itself is a part of displacement. And so um, I just think it's I do think it was important because all of the Detroiters I talked to talked about the culture and like they were like, I love my city and I love it because of these reasons or, you know, I love it because of my family or it was all of these things that they talked about or it's like, this is really important. And so we're going to share it, not because I think it's important or because it made me feel some type of way. It's because they said it makes them feel some type of way and that it's important to them. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at where bike rentals are putting mogo goes the mogos yeah when you look at where a lot of amenities are going into the city it's not where long-term detroiters live and when you look at where a lot of amenities that are built up it's not the kinds of stuff the long-term detroiters want to see and so i think there is that mismatch you know i was at my book club on sunday we were talking about detroit of our childhood you know and i grew up in the 60s and 70s detroit was eatonville Okay, if you read Zora Neale Hurston, you understand that she grew up in a Mm -hmm. community in Florida where it despite rampant, raging racism of her time, she grew up, you know, surrounded by black success, Mm -hmm. by black leadership, Mm -hmm. by black people who felt fully empowered. And that's who Detroit was. I attended one meeting. This was about four, no, maybe five years ago. I attended a meeting at the city in the planning and development department. And the only other person in the room who was not white was Indian. There were no black people in the room. I mean, who was not, the only people in the room who were not residents. All the residents were black. And the other people in the room, and there were about um, 15 people representing the city at the table. They were all white. And I was like, this is a different experience. And so we were explaining things. And there was one public official who was talking because people said, you know, Bus routes were removed from my neighborhood. And my mother, who's 81 years old, has to walk a mile to get to a bus stop. Mm. But you put in bike lanes. And he said, well, bike lanes are good and they're healthy. And, you know, bikes are less expensive. She said, so should my 81-year-old mother ride a bike to the doctor? What are you saying to me? You know, it's that disconnect. He's not even being intentionally dense. No, this person, you know, is routinely not listening to people in Detroit. But why would you make decisions? If you drive down Kerchival right now in West Village, you got to mm-hmm. ask yourself, whose idea was this? I cannot imagine any long-term Detroit in West Village was well, like. Well, I was there. I was there doing that uh, planning study process. And <laughs> let's just, yeah. I'm just saying yeah, yeah. that th- these are things that are happening. Even right now on um, Connor. There's bike lanes that are happening and Kanye is being reconfigured. And we're right here. I work right here. 
and nobody sent me a single diagram explaining how they're reconfiguring Connor Avenue, what it's going to look like, why it's taking so long. But what I do know is that one lane is going to be the bus express lane or whatever they mm-hmm. call that. Mm-hmm. And the other lane is going to be, you know, for mm-hmm. through traffic in mm-hmm. a street where you have a truck transit station right it's gonna be Connor crazy. It's and gonna Jefferson be and the St. Jean is closed truck traffic behind us for all of this const- uh, industrial uses and St. Jean is closed so it's like so Connor's already crazy getting to work is going to be a nightmare when all is said and done and that's how Detroiters sort of feel this powerlessness like somebody is making decisions mm-hmm. and they're not asking Olivia can I ask you this question and Lewis I would I would love to get your perspective on this as well Donna jump in too is in the sources that you quote in the story Olivia also have this heightened palpability of wanting to stay to benefit right like Mm -hmm. there's stuff that's coming that's going to be beneficial to us if we wait and it was almost as if some of them were pleading and like yo just just sort of hang on in there because Mm -hmm. we're going to be able to benefit uh and we don't want to lose what what what, what's coming yeah so i think the things that they're talking about are like property values are going up so Mm -hmm. like there's um you know, the, the phrase where it said, don't get rid of grandma's house, like mm. literally don't get rid of it. Keep it like do whatever it takes to keep that in your family, because when we talk about generational wealth within the black community, like these are things that if you hold on to this home, if you start this business, these are things that you can pass down to your family and your family's family like years from now. And that's really important when we think about leveraging ourselves and our community uh, in a really positive way. And because so much has happened in Detroit, it's it almost feels like there's been like a setback. And so to see these now like new pockets of opportunity, it's like, OK, jump on this right now so that we have something to look forward to, like something that we can that we can hold on to and like work with in the future that hasn't always existed here. And I, I, I fully support that. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um I'm a Detroiter. I moved back to Detroit. I lived outside of Detroit for many years, moved back to Detroit in 2014 and have not looked back and won't. And I, you know, tell all my friends, come back home. You know, I love living in the city. I'm happier here for so many reasons. Um, I also don't have to live in a house where I don't have a roof that works. I also have running water and I can afford to maintain that. I think that one of the ways that Detroit is a city of have and have nots is there some people who are not positioned to benefit from these opportunities. They don't own grandma's house. It was already taken from them. Right. And now they're living in a rental house with a landlord that doesn't care about them. And they're dealing with floods and bad transportation. And they move to a suburban community without a whole lot of wealth and their kids get picked up by buses and take them to school and government sort of services their neighborhoods in ways that doesn't seem to happen in Detroit. And so I think we have to be thoughtful about the fact that there will be some black people who definitely benefit by staying, coming back, investing and growing. And there's others, you know, who may not even have a lot of money who can buy a home from the land bank for a thousand dollars and fix it up and own a house free and clear. So I'm not saying the pathway is only from one class or group of people. I just believe that there's large segments of people who haven't figured out a future for themselves here and are leaving because the city is not making that possible or not investing in those 
efforts even now with the um, the bond money that the city with proposal proposal in you know many of us fought to have the city carve out some resources to make some of the vacant housing available to low-income people and set aside housing for low-income people and the mayor said no and the mayor actually said um, at one point we were talking about home repair that it is not the job of city government to be responsible for that and so when you look at what's happening in our communities, I agree some people have to fight, but do those people that, did you talk to anybody who really doesn't have that sense of opportunity or can't connect to or the have future? have that fight in them, yeah. Mm. I don't think so. Mm. But I, that's also a question I didn't ask. So I'm, mm. I don't know. But I, my senses know, just off the conversations I had with them, but no, mm. I don't think so. Yeah, the angle was different, right? Because we had we had so many stories on the the black population exodus, and so, and yeah, I get it. I, I, I mean, it's a great story and it's a great angle. I don't mm-hmm. mean in any way to detract from that angle. Oh, that's okay. There were I just there were a mean, lot of people who were upset. <laughs> I, I I don't mean to detract. I just mean that, like everything else, there's probably multiple stories on this, and one story might be former people who used to own homes or whose water was shut off or whatever or whose landlords deprived them of something, those people have a different path and a different perspective because Detroit is such a complex community that there's no one narrative for all of us. But we're, and we're also citing uh, the Detroit Future City Report that specifically talks about black middle class right. flight. Um, and I think that that conversation also looks very different. We had Lauren Hood in here earlier, uh, not earlier, but a few a few weeks ago, talk about her parents leaving the city of Detroit because of a home invasion that happened over in the Bagley neighborhood. And my you know, my folks ain't here no more um, in the city of Detroit. Right there. You know, there are so many factors. I think, Louis, you began to sort of uncover some of that in your timeline, mm-hmm. um, citing the, the middle class report. Yeah. I mean, uh, school safety, taxes, auto insurance were big, big things. Mm-hmm. Family. I mean, having children obviously poses a lot of questions for many people. And I think that's a question that a lot of us who are young, not married and without children who adore and love living in the city will be faced with once you once you marry and once you have children. What are you going to do? Because I've seen like sentiment change quickly. Right. Unless you can afford to send your kids to U of D. uh, You know what I mean? Unless you can afford, you know, it's a it's another conversation. Yeah. Mm. yeah, daily yeah. conversation in my household. Right. You know, and what and, are we gonna do? <laughs> and there are people who very successfully raised children in the city of Detroit oh, yeah, who know sure. how to navigate Detroit public schools and know how to pick them, and you know all of that kind of stuff. It takes a certain level yeah, of my awareness. Were great, yeah. And again, it takes a certain level of resources because if you have to drive your kids all the way to the other side of school, then you have to have either the that kind of transportation us. or the kind of job that mm-hmm. lets you do that and yep. then pick them up. And so I think that the the situations are complex. There are people who just moved out you know a lot of detroiters grew up watching tv and seeing people who lived in suburban communities have so many amenities they didn't have like you know being able to shop next door and certain types of features and they're not willing to struggle 
um, through the city's improvement in the same way that the urban pioneers are, you know, trying to take back Detroit back. And even those people, you know, in a lot of instances, it seems to me that during the pandemic, went back home to their mother's places and didn't really stay. And so um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I just think it is a complex story. It's a, a great, great, great question about why black Detroiters aren't staying in like a city in America. Yeah, Olivia, I got one last question for you and I know we got to wrap it up, but you, you sort of get at um, this, this uptick in, in white population and specifically white middle class in areas that we all mentioned before, Donna mentioned before, uh, where we have significant white populations and black folks and black culture still residing in those areas. Mm-hmm. And some of the sources sort of outline how their very existence like within their own culture is being policed and criminalized talk about that yeah so it's um disheartening to hear people say that they don't feel safe don't feel wanted in a place that has really been their own for so long um or that also just like the criticalness that seems to be like coming from I guess quote unquote new Detroit but like it's it's like this this critical feeling of like you can't be yourself in a city you can't stun on Jefferson right right. yeah (laughs) what is that like um and so it it just seemed like an important piece to highlight because every person I interviewed talked about that Hmm. Every single person. There's certainly more uh, to unpack uh, from both of your stories. I mean, they were so comprehensive and so good. We want to give our very special thanks to Louis Aguilar and Olivia Lewis uh, from for joining us from Bridge Detroit. Head on over to BridgeDetroit.com to check out those stories, guys. Thank you all so much for being on the show. What an amazing conversation and amazing journalism and storytelling on part of both of you. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you all. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So if you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. It is time for shout outs. Donna, you got any shout outs? I do. I want to shout out Catherine Douglas and our team um, in the um, community organizing and planning for hosting two events. Um, well, the one event, of course, that we wanted to talk about is overdose pre- prevention um, fair that we had today to really try to raise awareness of overdose prevention. Um, two people who are in our staff have been touched by um, drug overdoses. And we don't talk about it happening in the black community, but it's still happening in the black community. And we need to talk about it. So thank you, Catherine and team, for um, raising awareness. I also want to shout out Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib for showing up here on Saturday and bringing with her Bernie Sanders and Andy Levin. The and wow. Senator Bernie Sanders, Andy Levin, and um, Debbie Dingle for the Build Back Better, you know, rally to try to get people to support the infrastructure bill. How amazing that they mm. were here. Um, thank you, Orlando, for putting on your press badge and showing up on Saturday and stepping in. And also Nicole Perry for doing the same. And um I want to, you know, just shout out once again, one last time, my friend Steve Hood, who passed away. Um, I attended his funeral on Saturday, and um, it was a beautiful home going. So um, shout out to Plymouth Church for sending him away with so much um, beauty 
um, you know, despite it all, we were outside in the hot sun under tents. Mm -hmm. But we had an opportunity to hear from young people who he had touched and family members and friends over the years. Wow. All right. And I would like to um, give a shout out to a couple people, actually, um, two Detroit historians. One is um, Jermon Jordan, a fan favorite here at Authentically Detroit, who is now on the faculty at the University of Michigan. Um, that should probably be a shout out to the University of Michigan for deciding to learn and teach something about Detroiters in a real way because nobody does Ooh. it better. Ooh. And also to Ken Coleman, who wrote a story about the KKK bus bombing of the buses in 1971. Coleman, uh, my husband, Kevin Davidson, moved to Pontiac um, in 1971 and his he was directly impacted by that, as well as severe racism and threats and name calling by white residents on his way to and from school for the first couple of years when he moved there. So it's great for Ken and um, Jamon to raise our history and let people know. All right. Awesome. Let's, Thanks. let's give a shout out to the teachers who are now uh, going back to the classroom. Oh, week. yeah. All the kids. JG, shout out to you teaching on the front lines. Exactly. <laughs> Olivia Lewis, any shout outs you want to give? Mm, you know, I'm going to give a shout out to my mama. Um, hey, ma. <laughs> she was here um, for three weeks. Um, <laughs> right? She yes. was here for a while. Um, so shout out to her. Lewis, what about you? Yeah, I'd like to give a shout out to my friend, uh, Dr. Craig Wilkins, who just received tenure at the University of Michigan School of Architecture. Hey. Uh, he lives in Detroit. Yeah, shout out to him. That's dope. Um, I would uh, like to shout out uh, a young person that I've been having uh, some conversations with who I'm so impressed with, uh, Hakeem Witherspoon. He uh, just graduated from Michigan State last year, and he's a, he has a degree in journalism like uh, you yes. know us. So uh, Congratulations. Yeah, I've been sh talking to him. I'm like, man, what a bright kid. Um also, I want to shout out that on Thursday, I will be participating in uh, Detroit is Different, Kyrie Frazier's A Lot, a studio series that happens every Thursday. Um, I will be being interviewed by Piper Carter for the podcast. And so uh, we can put the information in the description of the podcast. But if you're free on September the 2nd, which also happens to be my birthday, I would yeah. love, love, love to see um everybody out and shout out to uh dr uh, eddie connor who i was able to um, have lunch with today and talking about black male mental health among mm. other things which is you know super super important to me so Sorry. All right, we're good. That's gonna that's gonna I've do. I've been it. working at my computer, man. I just I know. Come up for air, Lewis. Come up for Sorry. air, my brother. That's gonna do it for this episode of Authentically Detroit. Thank you for listening. We want you to catch the wave.